What is the gospel? The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are described as gospels. We often will sing gospel songs. We labor towards spreading the gospel. We seek to live our lives in accordance with the gospel. The Apostle Paul speaks of receiving the gospel not by any man, but by revelation. The gospel is something that Paul is not ashamed of because it, has the, it is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. Paul even warns the church in Galatia of another gospel that is trying to lead disciples of Jesus astray. He writes, if an angel from heaven were to come down and preach a, a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. What is the gospel? Well, in the ancient world, the word gospel was originally used as a political term. Gospel in Greek is the word euangelion, which is where we get the word evangel. An evangel is a message, and an evangelist is someone who shares an evangel. Emperors would send out evangelists quite often to announce the message of a victory in battle. When a Roman emperor achieved a victory in battle, messengers would be sent out into all of the towns and the villages. The messenger would raise his right hand and in greetings say, Kyrie Nikomen, rejoice, we have won the victory. And the announcement would initiate a new era in the emperor's reign and rule over his empire. A euangelion was a public message. It was public news about a public event with public in, in implications for the public realm of life. The message was designed to be for everyone to hear. Now, Mark's readers would have been familiar with the emperor's euangelions. And when Mark says, Jesus came announcing the gospel of God, the euangelion of God, they would instantly think a victory has been won, which is exactly what Mark wants us to see. Mark tells us that after John the Baptist is put in prison, Jesus comes out of the wilderness proclaiming the euangelion of God. Mark wants us to see that Jesus has achieved a decisive victory over the evil one in the wilderness. He doesn't go into detail like, like Matthew does, but he, he, it's implied. And then here comes Jesus announcing this victory. He's announcing the gospel of God. What we need to understand that when Jesus came out of the wilderness, he's preaching the gospel. His message is public news about a public event with public imp implications for the public realm of life. It was designed for every person to hear. One of the great pressures that we face today as believers living in this increasingly secular age is to think of our faith in Jesus as a strictly private affair. We're often told, if you must believe in Jesus, just keep it to yourself. Jesus might be good for you, but he's not good for me. 
When you are surrounded by people who don't have faith, the temptation for us is to either give up our faith altogether or to compartmentalize our faith. This pressure forces us to create a kind of false dichotomy between what is private and what is public, between what is sacred and what is secular. And many believers today have given up sharing the gospel because we have bought into this lie from the enemy that the gospel is irrelevant. Friends, we need to understand how radical Jesus' gospel is. Yes, his gospel has implications for the private realm of life, but his gospel has implications for the public realm of life. The gospel affects every person on the planet. If Jesus is who the New Testament claims him to be, and if what Jesus says is true, then it's true for everyone in every dimension of human existence. This morning, we're going to listen to the gospel according to Jesus. And as we do, I would ask you to think about the implications for yourself and for your family and for your neighbors and for your, this city that we live in and for the world. What is the gospel according to Jesus? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's very simple. The time is fulfilled. There's two Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos time is where we get the word chronology. Chronos is ordinary time. It's linear. It's the tick-tock movement of time, always changing, always pushing forward into the future. Kairos time is different. Kairos time cannot be quantified in the same way that chronos time can. Kairos time is a unique moment captured in time in which you move from one state of being into another. On June 30th, 2007, I was a bachelor. Up until the point, Carolyn walked down this aisle and we said our vows to one another before God and before the church. And then on July 1st, Carolyn and I woke up to a very different reality. We were single before the wedding, but after the wedding, we were married. Our wedding was a Kairos moment. On January 3rd, 2009, Carolyn and I went to Vancouver Women's Hospital at 1.21 a.m. It was just the two of us. At 1.22 a.m., we were parents. Hannah's birth was a Kairos moment. Each of our children's births were Kairos moments. Before they were born, we were living in one reality. After they were born, we were living in a completely new reality. The word for time Jesus uses is kairos. The kairos is fulfilled. Jesus begins his gospel by saying the unique moment in time is fulfilled. We are now entering into a new era, a new reality, one that has implications for all. The time is fulfilled. Essentially, Jesus is saying, in me, history has reached a turning point. In me, all of God's promises are now coming to fulfillment. In me, we are crossing the threshold from one era into another, and the great climactic moment planned by God has arrived. If we turn back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark introduces us to Jesus through the lens 
of Isaiah chapter 40, which describes God's great promise to restore the whole world. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain will be made low, and the rough ground will become level, the rugged place is a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all mankind. The story has always been about public news, but a public event with public implications. The time is fulfilled. Mark then introduces us to John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who is the voice calling out in the wilderness. John is the bridge between the prophets and Jesus. John is like Moses, calling Israel back to the place where their identity as God's covenant people first took place. Israel is about to experience a kind of new exodus. And Mark is very intentional in tell telling us that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him. The idea is that all of Israel is here, confessing their sins, being baptized as a symbol of God's forgiveness and as a way of preparing for the coming of the Lord. And then comes the Lord. Then comes Jesus. He enters into the waters of baptism, not because he needs to be forgiven of his sins, but as a way of taking upon himself the sins of the whole world. His first act, his first public act, is a foreshadowing of the cross. And then he emerges out of the water. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. God the Father says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the moment of fulfillment. This is the unique moment in history when all that God had promised in the past is now being fulfilled in his Son. The time is fulfilled. Time for what? It's time for the kingdom of God to come near. Jesus is God's spirit-anointed king come to usher in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a shorthand way of saying the living God is now ruling as king. There is a sense in which God has always ruled as king, but what Jesus comes into Galilee announcing is that in and through himself, the living God is now entering into the world in person to establish his reign and rule. I like the way George Ladd put it. He said, in Jesus, we see the presence of the future. What Israel expected God to do at the end of time starts happening in the middle of time through Jesus. In Jesus, we see the future spilling into our present. We see heaven and earth being knit together. We see the light breaking into the darkness. We see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. What does the kingdom of God coming near look like? As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he sees Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. Jesus calls out to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they leave their nets and follow him. He, he then went a little further and he sees James and John, sons of Zebedee. Jesus calls them, they leave their father, they leave their family business, they leave their homes, they leave everything that they know, and they follow Jesus. This is the kingdom of God come near. Jesus enters a synagogue. He's confronted by a man possessed with an evil spirit. The man is held captive for, by evil for, for a long, we, we don't know how long. Jesus simply speaks the word come out of him and the man is set free. This is the kingdom of God come near. This is God exercising his power over the kingdom of darkness. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Jesus comes to her and helps her up. 
and she begins to serve the disciples. Later that evening, the town bring all of their sick and demon-possessed. Jesus heals them all. This is the kingdom of God coming near. This is a picture of the future, when there will be no more sickness or oppression or disease. And as the story goes on, Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem. He makes a whip out of cord, starts driving out the money changers to give back the Gentiles a place to pray. This is the kingdom of God come near. Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples celebrating the Passover. After dinner, he takes off his robe. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. This is the kingdom of God come near. This is the king revealing what it looks like to be the king. Jesus hangs on a Roman cross. In a loud voice, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He gives up his spirit, and a Roman soldier standing close by announces, Surely this was the Son of God. This is the kingdom of God come near. This is the glory of God being revealed to all mankind. Three days later, the women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. Jesus is not there. He's risen. He's risen from the dead to an altogether new kind of life. This is the kingdom of God come near. Fifty days later, Jesus' disciples are gathered together, and Jesus baptizes them in and with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with his presence. They're empowered to do what he did. This is the kingdom of God come near. The question for us is, how do we enter in? How do we enter into this new world that Jesus is opening up for us? He tells us the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. We enter the kingdom of God by repenting and believing. To repent is to change the way that you think and then to reorient your whole life around King Jesus. Repent is a Greek word, metanoeo. It literally means to rethink or to continue to think about something. Jesus is calling us to rethink who he is. He's inviting us to continue to think about what he said and what he's done. To repent is to let go of everything that you think you know. And then to reconsider our lives in relationship with him. And then to believe in him. To trust in him. To lean our whole weight on him. To rest in what it is that he's already done for us rather than trying to make something happen. It's a very different kind of lifestyle than the one that we are taught living in this broken world where we have to constantly be doing stuff in order to earn other people's respect and favor. We don't need to do anything in order to enter into this. We just need to turn. We just need to receive this new life that he wants to give to us. It's important for us to see that these two verbs, repent and believe, they're in the present continuous tense, which translates, go on repenting, go on believing. We don't repent and believe once and then that's it. A disciple of Jesus is not someone who makes a decision once a long time ago, maybe when you're a little kid at a camp or something, and then you kind of go on living like the rest of the world, only calling out for help when you're desperate. This would suggest that Jesus is only our savior. I mean, Jesus does answer us when we are desperate. He does answer us when we are in need. That's how gracious he is. He rescues us when we call on his name. But he's also our Lord. 
To live under the lordship of Jesus is to go on repenting and to go on believing in him every day. Jesus is calling us to turn away from everything we know is wrong and to intentionally seek to be with him now. As we are with him, we experience power. We experience the power of the Holy Spirit. We experience his love, his joy, his peace. And this is what transforms our character so that we eventually, over time, reflect his character. And then he gives us power and authority to do the same things that we see him doing in the Gospels. This, of course, takes time. <laughs> it takes intentionality on our part to cultivate this kind of life with Jesus now. And we can't do it alone. This is why we come to church, <laughs> I hope, Sunday after Sunday. This is why we participate in the sacraments. This is why we pray. This is why we praise him. This is why we listen to his word. And this is why we meet in small groups. Let me just speak about small groups for a second. I, I would love to see everyone in this church somehow plugged into some kind of a small group. Why? Because small groups are integral for our formation as disciples of Jesus Christ and the spreading of the gospel. Like we see in Acts chapter 2. After Pentecost, the churches gathered together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to worship. They were given, we are given, a glimpse of the devotional life of the church. And Luke tells us that every day they continued to meet together either in the temple courts, which is, you know, they gathered together as a, a large community, but then they also broke bread together in people's homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then Luke makes this comment. He says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice how the early church gathered in large groups and small groups, and it was the Lord who added to their number daily. I read a book recently by a theologian named Alan Kreider called Ancient Faith for the Church's Future, where he looked at the explosive growth of the early church up until the time of Constantine, and he made this observation. He said the early church did not engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. There, uh, there are practically no evangelists or missionaries whose names we know. The early Christians had no missionary boards. They did not write treaties about evangelism. There are no examples of leaders urging the believers to be more evangelistic. The Great Commission was hardly mentioned. After Nero's persecution in the first mid-century, the churches in the Roman Empire closed their worship to visitors. Deacons stood at the church doors serving as bouncers, checking to see that no unbaptized believers were allowed in. No lying informers. They didn't want anyone in because they didn't want to get found out. Kreider then reflects on why the early church was so attractive. And he gives three reasons. First, he says spiritual power. The early church prayed for healing and people were healed. They prayed for people to be liberated from spiritual oppression and it happened. They were able to endure torture persecution without denying Jesus. Second, they had a very distinctive behavior that, that separated them from the rest of the culture. The early church lived counterculturally. They lived with an ethic of love. They cared for the poor and the sick and the marginalized. And then third, 
Catholicity. They were a diverse community, and yet they were united together as one, showing hospitality to all, a blend of rich and poor, and this was unheard of in the ancient world. The important emphasis that Kreider makes is that the church focused on its inner life with Christ, while at the same time being in the world, but not of it. I used to think that the focus of Jesus was to get us into heaven when we die. But now I'm realizing that the focus of Jesus is to get heaven into us now. As we go on repenting and believing and devoting ourselves to Jesus by meeting together in large groups and small groups, we will see the kingdom of God coming near more and more. And the Lord will draw more people into fellowship, into his church, into relationship with himself as we are faithful. Friends, Jesus is calling each of us to himself today through this gospel. He's inviting us, turn to me and I will lead you moment by moment, day by day, year after year, out of everything that does not line up with my kingdom into this goodness that is yet to come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Go on repenting. Go on believing this gospel and you will experience the living God working in you and among you and through you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we say yes to you this morning. Come and do in us what only you can do. We thank you for rescuing us through your death and resurrection. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your spirit. Now we invite you to be our Lord. Teach us how to live in your kingdom. And as we learn to be with you, empower us to radically love others and to share the good news with them that more and more people in our neighborhoods and this city and our nation and our world would come to know you for who you really are. Empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.